know, kind of one of the things that Paul Peoples, I heard it from Paul, I'll give him credit. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, that, that people that go buy these deals, especially like your first deal or your second deal, you go buy a 50 unit deal or a hundred unit deal and think you're going to own it for the rest of your life. Cause it's so great. Cause you've been doing single family, but people own apartments in dog years, right? So every year of real life feels like seven and, uh, and the smaller and older the apartment is, the more true that statement is, you know, cause this is tougher to, run and operate because usually when you get into these deals you know one or two things are going to happen either you hate it you know you're like man this sucks i don't want to do this let me sell and get rid of it or you love it you're like man i can't wait to sell the small deal do a bigger deal and scale up but you know at the end of the day you're likely not going to own this forever hey everyone welcome back to the get in the cash flow game with k and k podcast today you're only getting k um but we have a really cool guest on. Uh, we have Michael Becker on the podcast and Kenny and I have been following him for at least a couple of years now. So we were introduced uh, to him or we got to know him through a friend. Um, he is a host of another podcast as well. It's called the Old Capital Podcast. They are actually lenders out in the Texas area. Uh, so he's been hosting that podcast. He is also a syndicator uh, for SPI Advisory. And he's been doing that for over eight years. He has over uh, about 10,000 units in the like Dallas, Fort Worth and Austin markets um, or in Texas in general. So uh, very experienced guy, a really good company. Um, and we've been following him for a while. He also just launched his own podcast called The Michael Becker Show. So check it out. He's got a lot of very interesting people who have been in real estate. Uh, most of them are local to Texas, but um, there's a couple of really cool episodes that I've personally listened to. He had one with uh, a guy that was an attorney that was originally from California, relocated to Texas. Hearing his story was really interesting. Um, so he's got some good stuff on there, but you definitely want to stay in this podcast and check it out. Um, so prior to SPI advisory, Michael Becker was also a commercial lender. He worked at Wells Fargo for several years, um, and that's where he got kind of his experience uh, in uh, multifamily in general. Uh, towards the end of his his stay at uh, Wells Fargo, he also was just focusing primarily on multifamily assets. So um, he is born and raised in Texas, went to University of North Texas. <laughs> And so uh, he's really an expert uh, on all things Texas. And uh, part of the reason we really want to have Michael on is, A, to just kind of understand this whole syndication thing. I think a lot of us are, are sort of enamored by it and kind of want to know what the role is, how it works. Um, also, there's a lot of capital out there. So uh, a lot of our listeners, as well as just people in general, maybe own businesses or they have a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines. They want to invest, but they don't know where to invest. So you can invest with people like Michael Becker, who have experience in the market, have a ton of uh, you know, relationships that they've built over the years. They've got a solid reputation for performing and doing well. So brokers are bringing them their off-market deals and their best deals uh, first. So it's a good vehicle for passively investing when you don't want to do all that work yourself, or maybe you want to save some money on taxes and you can't find a property yourself. You could certainly invest passively and still get all the benefits of owning real estate. So stay tuned and listen in on our conversation with Michael Becker. So Michael, can you just kind of tell us how like your background and how you ended up with SPI? Yeah, I think, yeah. Thanks for having me on for the first place. Yeah. So yeah, Michael yeah. Becker, I'm based in uh, Dallas, Texas, a company I runs a company called SPI advisory and I have a partner named Sean Mabrak. So Sean's uh, in Austin, Texas, and I'm based in Dallas. And so those are the Two places we have offices and the two places that we uh, focus on for for buying multifamily deals and kind of prior to uh, to going out on my own i uh, i was a commercial real estate lender for a long time so i was loaning money to other people and kind of kind of through that process realized i was on the wrong side of all those deals kind of better be the borrower than the lender and uh about a decade i guess now uh started and sort of buying uh, real estate for investments so I started like a lot of people uh, do. I started with a three bed, two bath house in Mesquite, Texas, which is like an Eastern suburb of, of Dallas. I think I paid 75 or $76,000, something like that for it and put 10 to 15,000 of work in it and rented it out for 1100 bucks. And then I ended up doing 16 rent houses from uh, 2010 to 2012, something like that. Realized that wasn't very scalable. So, so went out and kind of reflected what I, I did all day, every day at work, which is loaning in our apartments. And I uh, did my first uh, multifamily uh, deal in 2013. It was a 
120 unit deal built in the built in the early to mid 70s um, kind of c-class deal I think we paid 3.8 or 3.9 million dollars so you know you do that math it's kind of like high 20s uh, high 20s low 30s a door and then we sold it a few years later for 55,000 and the next guy who bought it for me sold it for 80,000 I think it's worth 100,000 or something like that today and uh, you know kind of kind of 10,000 units later here here we are uh, done over 10,000 units on about 6,000 a little bit over that today and Dallas Fort Worth and Austin are kind of the two markets so besides that I'm the co are the co-host of the Old Capital podcast for the last six years and just launched a new show called the Multifamily Investing Show with Michael Becker. It's on YouTube and iTunes and Stitcher and probably anywhere you hear my voice. Uh, that's kind of a new thing I'm doing. So appreciate you guys having me on today. Yeah, we, we listen to both of those shows, yep. by the way. And when uh, people come to us asking about like multifamily investing podcasts, because it feels like there's not a lot out there. I'm sure there are, but we always recommend Old Capital. And now we uh, recommend your new show as well. So yeah, thanks. Yeah, you know, when we started out six years ago in the Old Capital, I used to joke we had dozens and dozens of listeners you know and now we're now we're getting 40 50 thousand downloads a month so it's kind of amazing to see kind of how it how it grows over time so appreciate you guys and your your show and um looking forward to today yeah again congratulations on all your success um that's super cool and somebody jumps into the real estate game and they have all that success because i know not everybody does so congrats on that um quick question for you so obviously uh we're in 2021 2020 uh, started off good and then we all got blindsided. So I kind of wanted to see your view looking back and I've obviously watched a lot of your shows. I've heard kind of through the whole, as we were going through the whole cycle, where do you kind of see everything and what's your thoughts as you kind of been able to kind of breathe a little bit and look backwards now? Yeah. You know, honestly, we probably had a record year in the first two months of 2020. I mean, it was an absolute monster start of the year. We sold, uh, we sold a couple deals, we bought a deal, we refinanced a deal, we had another deal that we helped another guy buy for a fee, and then we had uh, two properties in escrow that we're gonna, gonna sell, like we got kind of in contract pre-COVID, and then overnight everything just kind of kind of shut down. So it was kind of full, full force when, when it, when it kind of went from, I felt like we we're going hundred miles an hour and then we went to zero. It was like immediately. Um, so uh, it was, it was an interesting time. And, and, you know, we kind of basically sat at home and hibernated for about three months here in, in Texas and come June and go, go back to the office and start kind of doing deals together. And we, we bought another deal in August. I think it was the first deal we did kind of post-closing and the two deals we had in escrow that, both blew up that we're going to sell. We got them re reset and sold in the third and fourth quarter of 2020. And we ended up buying uh, two other deals. So I think we bought three deals post COVID and actually closed on one yesterday. So I think the the market, a, a lot of this answer is probably going to be very different. Like uh, someone like, like the two of you guys sitting in, in San Diego, your, your view of the world is completely different than the view of the world from a guy talking to you from his office in Dallas, Texas, I mean, it seems not, not that it's normal, but it seems for the most part, it's been relatively normal-ish for the last, you know, five, six months. And mm -hmm. kind of most people started getting out of their houses and going back to the office, at least the early adopters around June, maybe May. I mean, I was kind of towards the front end of that curve, I think. So it's kind of day-to-day -day life's relatively normal. I can go to dinner and I can go to a bar and do things like that, where I, I think that's still largely uh, not very available to you guys in California. And then what we've seen um, in our markets uh, that I've been coming to, I mean, we've been seeing tremendous amount of growth and, and population growth and job growth and corporate relocations. A lot of people from your backyard and maybe just a little bit to the north of you in LA County and then in Austin where, where my partner is and we own, we own a handful of assets. We see a lot of people from Silicon Valley come down there quite a bit. And those, those trends have been going on for the last 15, 20 years really just have been kind of accelerated uh, a lot, a lot of ways. And I mean, you know, Austin real estate is Austin, Austin and Phoenix, I think are probably like the two hottest markets in the entire country right now. And it's just uh, unbelievably competitive and Dallas isn't, isn't very far behind. So we're real bullish. You know, I think a, a lot of this stuff, a lot of these deals are really, if you would, if you were to buy a deal and, and set it in like in a late, late March and April, some of those deals that were about to trade that kind of blew up, you probably got a five percent, you know, three to five percent discount, I would say, on pricing for about a two, three month period. And once June hit, it was right back to the old pricing. And then ever since June, it feels like as I'm talking to you right now, pricing is accelerating in real time. Cap rates are compressing in real time. 
it just feels like everything is getting more and more expensive right now in Dallas and Austin. And I think many places like Phoenix, Atlanta, Carolinas, I think there's similar kind of the Sunbelt markets are all accelerating as we, we record this right now. That's what we're seeing here too. And I, th- I think for us in San Diego, it's a, it has some, it's, it has to do with a lot of like, there's really no inventory either. Do you think that that's kind of what you're seeing as well in your markets is that the lack of inventory uh, and low rates? No, it's different because they, uh, one thing that about Texas, Dallas in particular, Austin's got a little bit of topography, but Dallas is flat and goes on forever and it's really easy to build. So we if you look, look at kind of like the, the new, new multifamily units or even single family units for that matter, we were consistently number one or number two for yeah. about a decade, kind of neck and neck with New York City. And, you know, we were about half the size of New York City when that whole thing kind of started. <clears throat> so we, we like to build apartments in Texas. So I don't think it's necessarily <laughs> supply yeah. Maybe a little bit more in Austin, but right now Austin, I mean, so Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, we have approximately 800,000 market rate apartment units. Austin has approximately 200,000 market rate apartment units and Dallas Fort Worth, you know, year over year, they've been delivering, you know, 20 to 25,000 units every year been delivering. Austin's been kind of delivering, you know, kind of a little bit more uh, peaks and valleys. So kind of bouncing between, you know, 4,000 ish on the low end to seven, 8,000 on the high end. And right now they have like 18, 19,000 on a construction. So they're probably going to be delivering, you know, uh, five digits, you know, 10,000 plus a year. Uh, for the next several years. So uh, as a percentage of the base, they're, they're one of the largest supply markets in the entire country, but for good reason, because there's so many people and jobs and, and everyone's kind of relocating there that, you know, we, they need to build that, that level of housing stock or it's just going to turn into San Diego where it's really hard to build and, and you have, you know, so many people that want to be there that just drives the, the housing pricings, prices up. So we're seeing the prices kind of kind of really grow, but there is supply coming. So I don't think it gets quite as crazy as probably what you guys experienced at home uh, and neither are our markets. What's your uh, today, like what's your focus on your business? I know last year was a little different, but are you kind of like back to normal or is things still slowly or? Yeah, it's more, right? That's what we're trying to grow and expand. We, uh, we, we just bought a deal yesterday as, as we record this, have another one closing end of uh end of the end of the month um and then we're actively trying to trying to place a 1031 exchange for one of our clients and then probably do another syndication as well so we're we we're really concentrated in dallas for worth we have four assets about 1400 units in austin love to buy more in austin i'm going to austin next week to go tour four or five deals it's just really um really hard to make the math work in, in austin and so we're actually probably in the, in the process of looking at maybe expanding to a third market and to us San Antonio seems like probably a, a reasonable market. It's one of the four majors in Texas. It's an hour and a half from downtown Austin, downtown San Antonio, just kind of down the street from where we're at. And it seems like that is a market that is about the same size as Austin, similar number of units, similar number of people. But what San Antonio had a lot of supply over the last seven or eight years, right? You know, if you look at the supply stats, uh, the same size, same base, there's about less than like somewhere between five and 6,000 units on a construction. So they'll deliver three to 4,000 units in 2021 compared to Austin, that's going to deliver two and a half to three times the number of units. So it seems wow. like it's probably a reasonable moment in time to kind of enter that market and, and San Antonio is no Austin. I mean, it's not dynamic with the high growth and the tech jobs. It's kind of more blue collar city. Um, so it's not quite the, quite the same sexy, uh, you don't want to go, unless if you have kids, you go, you go to San Antonio, go to the Riverwalk, but you know, you want to go have a nightlife, you'd rather go to Austin than, than go to San Antonio. But that seems like a probably a decent market and then uh, and try to grow and you were hoping to do, you know, 250, 300 million in, in transactions this year, uh, probably translate to, you know, approaching 200,000, I'm sorry, 2000 units, kind of maybe, you know, 1800, 2000 units, somewhere in that ballpark. And uh, we pretty much have sold when we started out. We did a lot of like workforce housing was really kind of what we started with a lot of so Texas things like 1960s, 1970s kind of for the year of construction. We then transitioned to a lot of B class, so I think kind of like 1980s generally for year of construction. And then what we kind of focus on today is uh, really kind of 8A minus. So generally speaking, stuff that's kind of 20 years or younger, you know, year 2000 or, or newer. That's kind of the bulk of what we do. And we think that's kind of the best part of the marketplace. And uh, so we've pretty much sold all our workforce housing. We have maybe three deals I think left that are kind of, kind of just legacy deals that are, you know, well-located and always do really well. So those are kind of the last uh, survivors of, of that, that era for us. And um, so we're kind of just trying to, you know, it's exciting to, to buy nicer, prettier, bigger things and 
we think it's uh, you know kind of the better part of the marketplace from from our perspective right now. Yeah, because one of the things I noticed, I mean, you guys talk about a lot of other people is that from the C's to the B's to the A's, that cap rate's really shrunken down. And so, you know, if you're looking at a C to an A, it doesn't really make sense. Do you think, I mean, because I know nobody knows, but do you think we were going to see a little pressure because people are not going to be able to have to get bailed out on the workforce housing? They might have over leveraged or they got the bridge loans or a bit off more than they can chew. Do you think you'll see opportunities there or do you think it's, you're going to stick more in the A and B class? I mean, I think potentially that's, that's kind of what I thought. If you would have talked to me about a year ago or 11 months ago, I, I would have thought for sure there'd be some more uh, pain that, that would have been felt in particular in that, that part of the market. And, you know, listen, like we, we've had some elevated uh, collection loss and delinquency that uh, versus a normal environment, you know, in any given month we'd have, you know, less than 1% delinquency historically. And uh, you know, for most of the, the first kind of several months of COVID, like 1% went to say three to 4%. And then we kind of peaked out in December around 5% in my portfolio. Um, and that was kind of, and December's usually historically your highest delinquency yeah. month anyways, with people prioritizing buying Christmas gifts for the kids, <laughs> first, first paying rent. Um, and then now we're kind of in February, we've seen January and February, that collection number is, as the delinquency's come in, you know, so it's not accelerating, it's getting smaller. So that's positive uh, trend, and uh, and then you know now they, there was a nine hundred billion dollars stimulus uh, passed in December, and those within there was twenty five billion for rental assistance, and uh, they the and, and every state's a little different. So I know California's going to be different than Texas. So the states are administering it, and in Texas they're they're rolling it out next week as we record the, wow. this. Uh, from what I understand, they'll pay up to twelve months of back rent, and three months of forward rent for anyone that's kind of delinquent. So we've been carrying, you know, the people, some of these people, three, four, five months of rent. It's a relatively small percentage, but, you know, three, four months of rent, at $1,000 rent, you're getting, you know, $4,000 delinquent. And the, the collectability we thought was zero on that. And now we might get some magic money from the government that's going to kind of be a windfall <laughs> on this delinquent stuff and kind of take the next three months forward. And I think I heard in California, they'll allow you to get, they'll give you 80% if you forgive the debt. And I think they'll give you 25% if you don't. Yeah, so everyone, of course, is going to pick the 80%. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But that's going to that's gonna save a lot of these people that are kind of maybe over levered and maybe we're kind of getting a little bit towards the end of the rope because of my portfolio and I think everyone I talk to, the delinquency that, that is there is more concentrated in the workforce housing, which makes sense because those people that live in those, those types of properties tend to have to physically go to somewhere to work, wait your tables, work at a hotel, whatever it is. And those jobs were you know, disproportionately impacted at a greater percentage than like you or you, you, two of you guys and me, we just sat at home and worked for three months and then yeah. get back at it. So yeah, uh, that, that makes sense. So what it might not be as bad as I initially thought, but yeah, people in the higher crime areas with the, with the bridge loans, they're certainly hurting. I'm sure their the pro forma is going to be just blown out of the water because they're going to have a tough year or two. If you bought something in, you know, late 2019, mm. it was uh, a yeah. pretty tough timing for, for that, mm. that product for sure. Yeah. Um, speaking of money and the feds, obviously these crazy low interest rates. Um, one of the things I was going to ask you about, um, which was cool is, uh, listening to your guys' podcast. And I noticed a lot of guys were locking in on these 10 year, you know, 10 year loans and they were like, Oh, sure. we're going to keep the property. But then they realized they never keep it. And I, I follow JP Conklin too. So he did that whole survey of that big owner and said, they only kept properties three, four years and they're paying massive amounts of prepays. And so I think you guys, because the rates are lower, I was going to ask you, I know you're kind of moving into a different type of debt. It's like, and you're using like a cap on that. Can you kind of talk about how that's changed and why? Sure. Yeah. So when we first started out, um, you know, we thought we were, we we're geniuses and we started buying these deals and our interest rates were as low as possible. And they're you know, about 5%. And uh, that was much lower than what they just recently were. And we had a whole year of interest only. And that was great. And we thought we would just lock this loan in. These loans, these Fannie and Freddie loans were assumable. So we thought that we'd get, you know, below market interest rate. And we would go like a couple years down the road, sell it. The next person would want to come assume my mortgage and, and take it over at a below interest rate, below market interest rate. And uh, the exact opposite happened. <laughs> you know, 5% turned into 4 turned into now about 3%. And then one year of interest only turned into three, that turned into five. And when you do these large commercial mortgages that are fixed rates, they, they securitize them. So they kind of sell them as like a bond. So if you invest in the bond fund, you probably 
probably have maybe one of my apartments that I'm paying mortgage on every month is, is somewhere in that, that bond fund. And, um, and so they have yield maintenance or defeasance prepays. So these really large prepays that, you know, if I have a 5% rate and today's rates are three, you know, the, the, if I pay my mortgage off that, that uh, say it's a $10 million mortgage to get that same equivalent yield, you have to get, you know, much more uh, dollars to get that same gross yield. So, so your prepay goes up and is really large. So we've, uh, of, of the mistakes, unfortunately, we've never made any like life, uh, you know, or critical mistakes where we lost money or anything like that. But, you know, of the mistakes we made, that's been the single biggest mistake, which is kind of mismatching and not really uh, taking into account the yield maintenance or defeasance. I mean, to the, to the tunes of tens and tens of millions of dollars across my career, um, mm -hmm. that, that's really been uh, a, a lesson I learned really well. So a few years ago, um, we started doing a lot of floating rate debt. Uh, going kind of alternative Fannie, there's the Freddie floater has been extremely popular. So you get a 10 year loan, but it's an adjustable rate mortgage. And um, so we started doing that a, a few years ago and that's been a really attractive product. Still, still pretty attractive today. Not quite as good as it was, you know, a year or two ago. And um, that's been something and we've done some LifeCo loans and some bank loans and, and things like that. So I'm not opposed to getting fixed rate. What I'm starting to become allergic to is yield maintenance and defeasance prepay. So we're trying to um, avoid that at all costs. Unfortunately, the types of assets as we are getting better quality stuff, the, the lenders are, um, there's a lot more options for people like a loan on something nicer than like say a 70s kind of value add deal. Fannie and Freddie or, or a bank loan is probably where you're going to go for something like that where you get a nice pretty pretty building that's two three years old a life insurance company would do that and there's a lot more um, ability to negotiate flexible exits and prepays so if anyone doesn't take anything else from this conversation you know certainly uh, pay, make sure you pay attention to uh, your your prepayment penalties and the loans you put on these deals because that can come back and bite you and you know kind of one of the things that Paul Peoples I heard it from Paul I'll give him credit you know one of the things that uh, you know that the people that go buy these deals especially like your first deal or your second deal you go buy a 50 unit deal or hundred unit deal and think you're going to own it for the rest of your life. Cause it's so great. Cause you've been doing single family, but people own apartments in dog years, right? So every year of real life feels like seven and, uh, and the smaller and older the apartment is, the more true that statement is, you know, cause this is tougher to run and operate. Cause usually when you get into these deals, you know, one or two things are going to happen. Either you hate it, you know, you're like, man, this sucks. I don't want to do this to me sell and get rid of it or you love it, you're like, man, I can't wait to sell the small deal, do a bigger deal and scale up. But you know, at the end of the day, you, you're likely not going to own this forever. And if you syndicate or you raise capital from other people, um, you know, forever is not a good hold period. You know, usually those people want to get a return on their money as, a, uh, as well as a return of their money, kind of in that intermediate term, that three to five to maybe seven year kind of time horizon. You say, I'm just gonna own it forever. Most people don't like that and they kind of want to move on to the next thing, especially if you're having 50 or 100 unrelated investors uh, kind of pull the capital with you to, to buy the deal. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things. I, I do multifamily financing here in San Diego and I people are always so attracted to the lowest fees and the lowest rate. And I'm like, that is not, you got to look at the whole enchilada because you never know. Five years is a long time. Seven years is a long time. You don't know what you're going to do. You want more cash to buy another deal. You need to sell, whatever the case may be. It's like, you need that flexibility. So we're lucky here in California, at least that the, the financing is pretty good. I mean, we've got a lot of options, but uh, a prepay is like the one thing I, I feel like people can't quite wrap their head around and Anytime they've gotten yield maintenance, yeah. I feel like I haven't had one client that has not regretted it. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, for sure, for sure. And I yeah. know we're, a, we're of the age where, you know, we, it's been a declining interest rate environment for the last shoot, 40 years, really, since the early 80s. But I mean, now you talk to the guys that are in their 60s or 70s doing it, and they were, they were you know, lo loving it the first time they saw a single digit on their interest rate. It wasn't double digits and it was a, a tough environment environment back then. But, you know, for sure, I think optionality and flexibility is certainly uh, critical, especially if you're pooling money from, from other people and doing a syndication. Um, Cause you know, having that ability to exit it, you know, and, and if you want to fix it, maybe, maybe think about doing a seven year loan instead of a 10 or a 12 year but loan. I say, yeah. Maybe buying down your yield maintenance to, you know, to seven years or five years versus having it go out 10 years. And, and I think that's probably the better trade and give you a little bit of optionality. So if you do have to exit, you're not quite as stuck as, uh, as we've been in the past. So I know that lesson firsthand. For sure. And I, I always say, if you think you're going to hold it long term, I'd go seven versus 10 because it's long enough to get you through a cycle. 
at least too. So you don't want to feel like you're caught in a market where you can't get a loan or things are down or whatever. If that's your, your worry, then seven years kind of a happy medium. If yeah. five seems too short, 10 is kind of long, go with a seven. Um, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit and just ask about, I know that you raise money and syndicate deals. If someone's looking to invest passively, what kind of criteria do you think that they should be looking for? Uh, yeah, you know, I do that as well. I, I'm, uh, I'm kind of a, a binary person. I either like to have risk on my money or risk off my money. So it's generally cash or invest in, in real estate. And in my case, I don't really mess with the stock market too much, kind of mm-hmm. a small percentage. So I, I also pa- invest passively from time to time. Unfortunately, I invested in some oil and gas deals, which uh, <laughs> sounded good at the time and maybe, maybe not so good at the end. But, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing that or, you know, on the other end as a sponsor, you know, we talk to investors, you know, every day of my life, pretty much. And, um, you know, the first and foremost, I think, I think, you know, people, people invest with people they know, like, and trust. That's kind of the, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people that invest with me, they're all smart people, all, you know, accredited investors are so all generally rich in the in grand scheme of things, but, you know, they don't know, like, or trust me, they're not going to give me the money. So that's kind of scary because sometimes they just get these gut feels and I don't think they really understand what they're investing in, you know, but I think, um, you know, a lot of this business, you know, when I, and then I do this on the opposite. And when I'm invested in other people, maybe I don't pay attention to all the details in the deal. I just like this person. I trust that person. So I'm going to invest with the kind of, kind of think of it like you invest in the jockey more than the horse. So right. the sponsor, the deal, the track record, their experience, um, you know, the knowledge of the market, the knowledge of the, the, the asset class you're investing in. I think that's the first and foremost thing that I'm, I'm going to look at uh, when I'm investing into a deal. And then, you know, kind of secondarily are you in the right asset class, the right market, is the, the, the deal structured in a way that is reasonably conservative, you know, cause some of these people, every deal is a little bit different, you know? So um, if I'm looking at uh, a, a stabilized deal that has a light value add uh, multifamily property, I'm going to put three to 5,000 unit capital improvements in it is a completely different risk profile than a deal that's 40% occupied, 60% vacant in a tough crime area or different than a um, ground up construction deal. So if I'm looking at, you know, the, the 40% occupied deals got a 16% internal rate of return and the more stabilized deals got a 14% internal rate of return, the risk spectrum of those two deals are completely different. So is that extra 2% return worth the additional risk? You know, maybe, maybe not, but those are things you should think about on a risk adjusted basis. You know, is that worth the extra, extra potential return? Cause you know, one thing I've learned by doing, you know, I don't know, 50 something properties now as a, as a principal, you know, every performa, every projection I've ever done has always been wrong. Right? I either do better <laughs> yeah. or I do worse. You yeah. Never do, never do exactly what you think you're going to do. And fortunately we've done much better in most cases than, than we've done worse. And part of that's the market. So, you know, those are not all me. Um, but that, that's something I certainly learned quite a bit along the way. Um, so just kind of focusing on the sponsor track record, you know, then kind of just looking at the, the deal and you know, is it layered in with a bunch of risks? Do I have, and you know, 75% mortgage, and then I put 10% preferred equity or mezzanine financing behind it. So the total leverage is 85% to make it look similar returns to maybe the deal that's 70% leveraged over here. So those, those are things that I, I look at when I'm looking at a deal. Nice. Um, quick question for you. So with all the stimulus going on, um, obviously I think a lot of people are taking a step back and reevaluating where they're going to put their money. Obviously I know the saying cash is trash because you're just not getting a return. It seems like a lot of people are moving into whether it's gold commodities or real estate. Um, what's your kind of, I know I've listened to you, but I just want to know what's your kind of projection with all this printing and inflation you know, multifamily market, obviously you guys are in the booming market there in Texas, but what do you foresee or what do you like all your peers around you in the next five, 10 years? Yeah. You know, I've been, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a paranoid libertarian at heart, right? I've been thinking that we're going to see the end of the world for a while. And so and I do have a little bit of, a little bit of gold and stuff like that too. And it's just kind of sat there last year. Or so it's finally kind of moved up a little bit, but um, you know, actually, you talked about JP Conklin. I actually interviewed him yesterday. So, it's oh, cool. Next, cool. Awesome. On show. So, I was asking him similar questions. So, you know, I keep saying, like, when's, when's inflation going to happen? You know, and he keeps, you know, kind of his little comments would be something along the lines of, you know, we all been thinking the inflation boogeyman has been around the corner for the last decade and it's just never, never come, come out. And the deflationary pressures of kind of the population aging or you know, the baby boomers kind of aging. 
technology being deflationary, you know, all these things are kind of really, really fighting. So the, the, the Fed printing all the money is fighting the natural deflationary pressures that we're kind of going through. And, you know, we've been at really low interest rates for the better part of 12, 13 years now in the United States. So I don't think his, his opinion was, and I, I tend to agree with him, you know, uh, Jay Powell said he's going to keep rates low for at least two to three more years. And so he probably thinks that's more like five to six years on the short end of the curve the Fed funds, and so that means LIBOR and so for, uh, uh, for, for kind of the floating indexes. And then 10-year Treasury went from, you know, what, 2% back kind of right before uh, COVID hit and went all the way down about 50 or 60 basis points. So about a half a percent now. It's, uh, and I haven't looked the last couple of days, but 100, uh, 115 or 120 yeah. um, right now roughly on the 10-year Treasury. So it's kind of doubled from the bottom and, and you know, He's kind of saying that he thinks that uh, the Fed's going to probably put a ceiling on that mm-hmm. around 150. So it'll just kind of print print money and buy the, the long end of the curve. And then also, if you if you we're not in a vacuum, so people that buy Treasuries, we're going to look at the the uh, JGB over in Japan, the the, the German Bund, and those are ne- negative yielding. Yeah. So if we get uh, you know two percent, I mean it's going to be extremely attractive compared to negative 50 basis points. It's you know two two hundred fifty basis points higher than what you're going to get over in Germany, for example. So I think that it's going to be a natural um, kind of uh, flood of people people buying the the bonds. So I really don't see it going away. And and you know and I think the policies you know right or wrong, a lot of what the the the, the printing of the money, the Fed's been doing, and then the the stimulus. Um, you know all this money. If you think about it, like the the big what is it two point seven trillion dollar bill they did last uh, August or April. I'm sorry, last year what is the, the average family got uh, was like 1200 bucks for yeah. adults and $600. If you add that times 300 million people, it's really, it's nowhere near $2.7 trillion. So all yeah. this money is just going into the, the banks and, and you're just looking at these, there's, there's not consumer price inflation, but there's certainly asset price inflation with real estate, stock market, things like that. So it's just really, that's unfortunate because everyone's uh, concerned about the income inequality and the growing wealth gap. And all the policies are doing is doing nothing but exacerbating that, that gap. And those of us that can buy real assets that produce cash flow and you can lever them, I mean, shoot, we're going to, you know, we're going to continue to get wealthy and the, uh, the people that live in our apartment is going to continue to fall further and further behind. So I don't mean to get political, but it just seems like the no. prescription to the illness we have is the wrong one. It's going to exacerbate those, those issues. Yeah, what's your, um, I know you guys are not self-managing, but I kind of wanted to talk about a lot of people. I think, you know, uh, I hear if you get above this, you should self-manage. If you, if you don't self-manage, because it really takes your eye off the prize. Um, I've heard people say self-managing sure. is, you know, you're better, you're better doing that. So what is your kind of take on either or? Yeah, I mean, I think all things being equal, uh, you know, no one cares about your money more than you do. So I think, all things being equal, self-managing is probably probably the better way uh, in a lot of respects, uh, especially when you get over you know a couple couple thousand units, you have enough scale where you can probably at least break even, if not make a, a little bit of money on 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 doing that. But we've chosen to be um, to stay third party. We we engage one firm, so they're they're uh, value residential, so they're based in Dallas, but they could they manage all our stuff in Dallas and Austin. And we're about six thousand units today. They're about eighteen thousand units. So it's kind of the next best thing, I think, from like a, a caring standpoint. Um, and then, you know, I'm a, I'm a banker by profession. My partner, Sean's a financial analyst and we have what, 10 people in our company and we manage a billion dollars worth of, worth of real estate. <clears throat> and if I had all the, the property management in the house, I'd probably be more like 200 employees with <laughs> counting and HR and construction and, you know, regional managers and just, you know, all, all that stuff. And so, I just, it's been like a lifestyle or personal decision that, you know, maybe it would be incrementally marginally a little bit better, but uh, this is, this is good enough. And really, um, you know, when, when you, if you're aspiring to be an apartment syndicator, you know, really uh, the way you make money in this business is, you know, you make it two ways. You gotta, you gotta, gotta find money and you gotta find deals, right? So, you know, talk to brokers as to source inventory, you gotta talk to investors, raise capital and everything else is kind of noise. You know, it's really important. Like I'm doing 1,300 K1s right now. It's the middle of tax season. So you got to do your K1s. You got to communicate with investors. You got to asset manage right. You got to implement your capital um, budgets, capital improvement plans, and do all, do all the stuff you, you, you got to do. But at the end of the day, the way you get paid is you find deals and find money. So um, I'm chosen to, you know, kind of outsource the management, 
and we have internal people that kind of help. I'm responsible for everything, but they have the day-to-day kind of uh, obligation to manage just kind of, I, I just deal with the, the big problem, not so much the small problems anymore. And that's worked well for us. And so not saying there's a right or wrong. I, I would agree that all things being equal, you could be vertically integrated. I know people will say you just hire a president of the management company, but then you know, at some point I, I deal with this like minutia crap that bubbles up to me now. I can only imagine the day-to-day level about some pissed off tenant at one of our properties over whatever will get to me a lot more frequently if it was in-house and the not. And that'd be distracting over the greater mission that I see for my company. I agree. You know, I feel like it, you said a, a key thing there is there's just a lot of noise outside of everything. And I would say that, Property management creates a lot of noise everywhere. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a problem business, just, you know. It's, yeah. You know, you got it's it, every day is a problem. Yeah, every day, even the best of times is just problems, and I got enough problems. I don't need those types of problems <laughs> on my radar screen. Yeah, yeah, I agree. No, it's totally. What's your um? What is your exact role or strength with uh, your company, and like what separates? you know, a good owner or a good syndicator from somebody that's just not, you know, not great. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, my partner and I was, uh, wish it was more intentional, but it turned out to uh, be pretty good partnership. We have very different, but complementary skill sets. So, you know, he's like a genius when it comes to like math and analytics and doing spreadsheets. He's actually got a really good sense of negotiation about them and, and kind of deal sense to them. So the, we kind of break our two offices. Uh, Austin's kind of like the transactional side of our business. So underwriting deals, processing the debt, um, you know, they do insurance. So anything kind of around buying, selling, and running escrow, that's generally kind of in, in Austin, up in Dallas. Uh, investor relations, so kind of uh, the, the face of the company to the investors. Um, asset management, you know, all the administrative stuff. Unfortunately, I do all the tax returns up here. So kind of anything with the, the money of the investors or asset management the deals, that's kind of handled up here. And then we kind of split our duties on sourcing um, inventory, new products, stuff like that. So I have certain relationships. He has certain relationships. So they, we all have, you know, we share them, but he's got deeper connections with certain guys and I have deeper connections with different different brokers up here. So we kind of split that. So that's, uh, that's been good. We try not to cross over and get in each other's business too, too often. Uh, I can kind of do what he does and he can sort of do what I do, but we just wouldn't be as effective if kind of staying in our own lane. So by, by kind of partnering up together, you know, one plus one doesn't equal two or probably equals three or four in our case, an ability for like the output of, of work we can do just by doubling down on our strengths. So that's something I would certainly, uh, you know, suggest if you're, you're going to be in a partnership. Um, as far as what separates the better owners from the other ones, all, all there's many things, but one one avenue I'll, I'll say, um, especially when you're finding deals, you know, from that aspect of it, you know, these these deals are largely controlled by brokers. So just making sure you have deep and um, deep relationships and established relationships with these brokers are, are real key. So what I've seen a lot of kind of younger people, I think, that are younger in the business, as far as maybe not younger in age, but kind of younger in the business, make some mistakes where, where they're like, uh, their focus is diverted. So they're, they just want to find a deal, a good deal. They don't care what market it's in. So they'll buy a deal in Texas and they'll go buy a deal in Missouri and then go buy a deal in Georgia and then a deal in, you know, wherever, Iowa. And then there's kind of bouncing all over the country and they go into these smaller secondary markets. So there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but it's really hard to do, you know, to manage all the assets when I have it in two separate markets and they're really close to each other. It's hard for me to do that right now. I can only imagine how hard it is if you don't know what you're doing because you're relatively inexperienced and you got four different properties at four different sites and maybe two or three different management companies on top of that. It's really kind of scattered. And then worse than that, you know, if you go buy a deal, say in Topeka, Kansas, there's only so many apartments in Topeka, Kansas. And so if you do this business right, brokers control the deal. So if I, if I do a good job, I buy that deal, I do everything that Sigmund do and I get really you know, good, good marks from that broker, there's not a next deal right behind it to go monetize that that goodwill I just just uh, created by doing the first transaction, or if you buy like in San Diego or you buy in in Texas, Dallas, or you know Atlanta, some of these markets have got you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of apartment units. There's a lot of opportunity. So these relationships I built, you know, we can monetize over and over and over again. A good example was I said I closed the deal yesterday. That was the ninth transaction. I did with this just one broker, right? Wow. So like, you know, I, I built that goodwill up four or five years ago and then I just monetize it over and over and over again. So 
when there's a deal, I get that call. And uh, that that's what I could do in Dallas. That I couldn't do in Topeka, Kansas. So that, I think that's a mistake I've seen some people make. If they really want to be serious about this business and grow into a company, I'd focus on a market or two and make, make sure I'd probably say to have at least a million people in the MSA uh, for the markets that you're focusing on. So you can kind of repeat and monetize that relationship over and over again. That's a good point. I mean, are, are you seeing that you're competing with several other people on most of your deals? Yeah. So it depends. It, it depends. I mean, this one was, was just us, but it was kind of a special situation. It was the second time we bought from that same seller as well. And, oh, cool. But yeah, yeah. I mean, there's very few deals that are like that deal where you're truly, truly off market, even off market deals are like, let's go to a handful of uh, people. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm generally speaking in that top, I make the top five or the top 10 or whatever it is. I'm, I'm making that list more than I'm not on the types of deals I want to buy. But yeah, this, it's like a knife fight. I mean, it's, it's very competitive. It's very, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult environment to try to try to win deals if you're seasoned and, you know, have a good reputation. If you're new, it's, you know, that much, that much harder to try to, to get some of these deals, but you know, everyone starts with zero. So you got to kind of work at it and be persistent and grow into it. And eventually you get that first deal done. Your, 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 your credibility goes through the roof when you actually do it up until then, it's just kind of all academic and no one really believes you that you're going to actually uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, do, do the deal. So that's uh but yeah, it's, it's competitive. And I, I don't think that's just exclusive to two markets. I'm in, I'm pretty sure that's everywhere. Major markets across the country. Uh, with maybe San Francisco right now, no one wants to buy it. I don't know if anyone <laughs> wants to sell right now in San Francisco because they don't want to take that kind of haircut because I'm sure everyone's thinking it's a temporary situation. But you know, if you're in Phoenix or you're in Atlanta or you know Charlotte or something like that, I'm sure I'm sure it's just as competitive as Dallas. Well, that recent deal you did is uh, definitely a testament to your relationships because, like you said, they don't come along often. But that's just an example of what someone can do if they build the right relationships and the right yep. reputation. Yeah. And that deal, so I'll give you just a couple more th uh, uh, talking points on that deal. We bought a deal for that same seller four years ago. Well, this, is, uh, this property we bought is in Denton. So the, the fifth property we own in the city of Denton, we just found the deal right across the street. I've been tracking that deal for four years. Like ever since we bought the other one, I started, I wanted to buy this deal. So we started tracking it, tracking it. And then uh, I saw last June or July, like uh, a little uh, flyer of upcoming deals from this broker. And that was on there. So 240 units in Denton, Texas. I knew exactly what it was from a photo, even though I said a name. And so I reached out to that broker that we have a good relationship. And I was like, when that deal comes out, that's my deal. I want to buy it. So we started kind of working on it preemptively. And then the, you know, check in every month on it. I never actually saw it get blasted out. Never actually, you know, did the coming soon or the, 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 the marketing. So I talked to the broker around uh, November of last year. I'm like, what, what the hell ever happened to this deal? And he's like, oh, I was like, they had a dip in, in occupancy. And so he reaches out to them. Well, it turns out they were, they had a dip in occupancy. So they decided to not sell it. They're going to refinance it. And they just started the application. And then, so we were able to like, you know, stop the, stop the refi train because they were literally in the process of it. And so we ended up putting the offer and getting it done and the broker would have lost his listing and he wouldn't have been paid if we didn't come in and he didn't think about it, but I'm like top of mind because I talked to him every Every week, if not multiple times a week, I'm talking to the same guys over and over again. And I just asked about those deals. I'm constantly like throwing ideas out. And if I didn't do it, he wouldn't have had that listing and they would have refinanced it. And that's kind of the testament of being you know, persistent is, uh, you know, a key, key trait to be successful in this business. Yeah, it's helpful too that, you know, he's helped you out and sold you some great deals and you were able to help him out and get him a commission on that listing too. Yeah. On that right. note, I was going to ask you tracking it. Yeah. I was going to ask you on that, that note, I think cause a lot of people don't really understand, like, you know, they think maybe deals just float on your desk because, Oh, you're the king of the mountain, right. In your town. Um, how often and how many brokers are you probably talking to on a day or a week? Yeah. I mean, it's every day for sure. We're, we're talking to one or another. I mean, it's a rare day. I don't, I don't have a conversation with one of them. And, um, you know, there's probably seven or eight shops in town that I really kind of focus on. There's a couple more than that in, in general. And then within these shops, just kind of hierarchies. And then you get your, your broker or that you kind of tend to be a little bit more kind of your main point of contact, even if they have multiple uh, guys, guys or gals in the group. And um, so, yeah, and then we have two more kids. So the office is a little smaller, but there's probably, you know, 12, 12, 11, 12 uh, brokers that are really kind of my, 
my key relationships and you know some of them I talk to a little bit more often than the other ones but yeah every day if not multiple multiple brokers a day and if I if I find I'm gone two or three weeks without talking to one of the one of them I'm finding a reason to call them and check in and talk about whatever and see what see what's going on so it's just a, it's a continual thing if you want to buy and scale that's kind of what you need to do that's hard too when you when you start now because you're going to get a deal then it takes everything you need to do once you've been hunting you work 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 finally get the deal awarded to you then then you're like okay now i gotta do all this work and raise the money and get the loan and process it and put all the legal stuff together so you kind of stop prospecting and you kind of just focus on working on it and then when you close that deal then all of a sudden you had to work again and you got to start over and you don't have the inertia so once we get that that used to be me too and so now we've kind of got big enough and got enough scale where we're just perpetually trying to find you know new deals just constantly always my, my goal is to be perpetually in escrow. I'm always wanting to be buying something, you know, perpetually because sometimes it takes, you know, two, three months while, you, while you're in escrow to actually from start to finish. I want to have the next thing lined up before that one kind of closes. So I kind of roll right into the next one. Well, and what would you say not to do? Because I think the, the other thing is when you're starting, there's this like fine line between bugging a broker and wasting his time and then also trying to build that relationship you kind of what i found is you build that relationship through like you said performing through closing an actual deal and they're like okay these these people are real now we can kind of start building what would you say some of the not to do's are yeah for sure yeah that's that's the fine line you walk you want to be um in in their in their uh and their their space you want to be you know in top of mind for them but you don't want to be annoying at the, at the same time <laughs> And, um, you know, so that's a, that's the fine line you have to walk. And when you're starting out, they don't know who you are. If you're just all over them, that's probably not the best approach. Um, you know, I, I, a couple of thoughts are really, you know, I think when you're starting out, you need to be um, direct and honest. So, you know, hey, these, this is what I have. This is where I'm at in my life. This is what I want to accomplish. You know, so we, I think being first and foremost, being very self-aware of what you have and what you bring to the table and, you know, then kind of then, you know, making sure that you're educated enough and, you know, kind of like it's like a puzzle when you do one of these deals, you got a lot of pieces and when they all kind of come together, there's a clear picture and you can do the deal. So you got to get your debt, you got to get your equity, you got to be able to you know, qualify for the mortgage, uh, you got to be able to front the, the pursuit costs. So, you know, when you're we're buying a $10 million deal, you're probably putting up a hundred or 200,000 of, of earnest money, you're buying a you know, a $50 million deal, you're probably putting up a million dollars worth of earnest money. So if you don't have that, how do you, how do you then get someone else to, you know, front that money for you? You know, co-sponsoring has been a, a thing that's been pretty popular the last couple of years when there's a lot of syndication clubs and, and groups that kind of people pull together and they meet each other through these, these clubs and been able to do a lot bigger deals um, pretty, pretty quickly kind of out of the gate. It's impressive to see a lot of these, these kind of newer people coming in and, you know, we bought a $4 million deal and had to raise, you know, two to $1.2 million. And I didn't know how the hell we we're going to do that. Now people are coming out of the gate, seeing, you know, guys like, like me kind of go ahead of them. And then they're seeing, uh, you know, that you can do a 10 or $15 million deal on your first or second deal. And that's just kind of mind blowing to me that to see kind of uh, out of the gate, some, some of these groups, uh, the size of some of these deals, these groups are doing. So just thinking about all the stuff that you have and then, I think, you know, maybe a couple of tips is, you know, you need to get on all the brokers list and then in the markets that you want to focus on, you know, this is not a business, you know, I know uh, last, last 11 months aside, this is not a business you can do from your, your home uh, or your office. You got to get out and got to get to know people, tour properties, kick the tires. So if you live in San Diego, you want to buy in Dallas, you got to go on an airplane, you got to come to Dallas, you got to tour these deals. You know, I, I, a tip I've been giving out here lately, I think one of the better things to do is, you know, if you're scheduling a tour, maybe be a little strategic about it. Maybe schedule a tour at like 11 a.m. in the morning. And then, you know, when you're done with it, it's naturally lunchtime. And you can go to the broker and say, hey, you know, I don't have lunch plans. You want to go down the street and grab a, grab a bite to eat? Maybe that works. Maybe that doesn't. But if they say, okay, and they go have lunch with you, you have 45 minutes an hour of time just kind of one-on-one -on -one with that broker. And people do business where they know, like, and trust. And that's a good way to build a rapport and these little soft edges, these little soft skills go an extremely long way. And it's, it's, it's people, everyone, everyone's got money. Everyone can underwrite a deal. You know, the debt's just similar. I mean, there's certain advantages for being big, but a lot of it is about the relationship. And if they like you, they're going to go for bat for you, or they're going to give you that little bit of information that you might need to get that, get your offer right. 
And, you know, when, when I'm looking at these deals, I'm talking to a broker, you know, I'm thinking either I want to have the first call if it's an off-market deal, I want to have the last call if it's a marketed deal. I'm always working my way to get in that position where you get that, that little bit of information because it's an imperfect market and it's not like a, a stock. I mean, there's a lot of information you can find out about this deal that maybe the next person doesn't. And then you can, uh, you know, win that, win, win that deal because of that uh, unfair advantage you have. Um, did you have a, did you have a mentor or do you have one? Not there? a formal one, right? I, yeah. I never was in a group. I have lots of mentors uh, through both my banking career and then, you know, kind of, kind of coming out, just people, uh, people I observed and talked to and kind of uh, did, but I, yeah, I never, never had it. I, I got my education by doing loan after loan after loan and just kind of figuring it out. It would have been a lot easier if I could just paid someone 20,000 bucks and taught me everything I needed to know versus, spending a decade of my life trying to figure all this stuff out uh, a little bit at a time. What do you think, uh, what would be your biggest piece of advice for somebody that maybe they just, they're not going to syndicate, but they're listening to this. They're going to buy their first fourplex SFR or 10 unit building that you would give from your, from your 30,000 you know, foot view. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, um, you know, if, if you just want to own and kind of be like an owner operator of smaller stuff, which I used to be, um, you know, I think that's certainly fine. I, I always think about too, if, you know, I, st I stopped at 16 houses in 2013 or something like that, I probably would have had, I don't know, a thousand houses and owned them all hundred percent myself. If I just kind of would have kept going down that would have to scale that business up and, and get employees and stuff. And maybe I would have been about the same place as I was uh, going, going the route I did. I don't really have regret. So I don't know if there's, there's not a right or wrong answer to any of this stuff to kind of what fits it's you um, along the way. So I guess kind of really what's your objective and, you know, if you're, if you're wanting to scale and, and, and do it, the multifamily is a lot easier way to scale just because of the size of these things. Uh, man, it's a hell of a lot easier on an apartment building. You yeah. got, you know, hundred, hundred units, 200 units in one location versus scattered sites all over the, all over the city. But um, you know, I think, I think that makes sense. I mean, a lot of people, I, I get the, I get that question maybe in a different form. Like what's the advice to break into the business? Yeah. If you're, you know, inexperienced and, you know, I kind of think of it like from two perspectives, you know, one, if I'm 23 years old, right out of college, it's a different thing. If you don't have any money versus I'm 45 and an engineer and just want to change my career. So if I'm young and I don't have any money, I want to get in the business. I really found three, um, three kind of avenues where I've seen a lot of people kind of come out of that, that have been kind of successful. One of them is kind of the, what I did. You work for a bank. You know, so get in the credit department, learn how to underwrite these these commercial real estate loans and get on the loan production side. You get to see deal after deal after deal. And if you think about it, the largest part of the capital stack, you got your debt, you got your equity. Your debt's, you know, usually 70, 75% of the capital stack. So that's the biggest part. So if you understand that, you're understanding your really key components, how these deals are put together. Uh, the next one, I've seen a lot of people either become like an analyst and then a junior broker at a, at a commercial investment sales shop, you know, Marcus and Millichap or CBRE or something like that. So I've seen a lot of those, those brokers in transition and you get to, you know, underwrite deal after deal after deal and you get real on the ground analysis and, and you know, kind of see these deals and there's a lot of repetition. Uh, and then finally, probably the easiest way out of all of them is really other people that go work at a private equity shop. It's maybe a little bit bigger, more institutionalized version of, of what my company is. And they just kind of put these deals together and work with sponsors, work with brokers and kind of put them together. Uh, I think the way I came out of those three is probably the hardest just because uh, as a banker, you're, you're, it's ingrained in you to be conservative. So it's kind of hard to break that mentality and take risk, which, you know, there's, there's a lot of risk in it. Um, so, you know, that, that's what I would say to come out of college. If you're 40 years old, 45 years old, and you just kind of want to change your career from being a salesperson or, or whatever your professional career is, you got a little bit of money. You know, I, I think the, the mentoring club is a, is a good avenue. There's a lot of them out there. So I would pay attention and I don't think they're all created equal, you know? So I think, uh, some of them have some, a lot of them have pretty good information, but you know, some of them that have, you know, more than the information, the, the better ones and that I've observed, have like an ecosystem, you know, they have all those things I mentioned where you got a lot of people in there that you can raise capital from, you can find potential co-sponsors from, um, you know, you partner up and do deals, you can uh, get people to help sign on your mortgage to qualify if you don't have the net worth, you can find all the vendors, the management company, the mortgage brokers, the, you know, lawyer, et cetera, all that's kind of in one, one location, one room. 
and it's just your job to then kind of put all the pieces together. They don't, they don't, they're not going to give everything to you, but they facilitate that environment where you can kind of make those relationships and grow. And I've seen, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people make millions of dollars uh, by, by joining, you know, various mentoring clubs. So like I said, it'd be a lot easier if I, instead of going to college and I'm working for all these years, if I just could have paid <laughs> 20,000 bucks and got all that information <laughs> would have been a lot easier way about it. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot of things that are easier about that ecosystem is just a lot of like-minded individuals and people pulling together their relationships. There's a lot of benefits to it. And it is, it definitely seems to be getting more popular and I can certainly see why. And it's, it's, it's really cool to be able to find a community of like-minded people because otherwise it's like finding a needle in a haystack. That's right. And that's when I, when I raise money, it's a lot easier. If I'm, if I'm, you're coming to me and you already um, have two different rich, rich investors and, one of them is just a traditional stock market investor, don't know anything about commercial real estate or multifamily. I, I, you know, if I'm trying to convert them, you know, it's a much harder sell than if I met someone at an investment club, I got, you know, some base level education. They also have the same amount of money. They already believe in real estate. They already understand the tax advantages. They already are kind of, you know, they, they're interested in it. Now they just got to believe in me and believe in the deal. If it's just some random, my rich uncle, I then got to convince them, you know, why me, why this deal, why multifamily, the tax advantages, what's a 506C or 506B raise. I mean, this is a lot more uphill battle. So yeah. kind of getting, uh, going fishing in a pond that's stocked with the people that already understand it, it's a lot easier way to convert that that investor. So that's been, I've done both in, in my career and that's certainly, I gravitate toward, towards that. Or like you guys have your podcast. I mean, same with me. A lot of people reach out. They've already listened to me for, you know, hours and hours yeah. droning on about, about multifamily. So either they're into it or they're not. And if they're, you know, if they listen to, you know, many, many episodes, they're, they're into it. So they're a lot warmer lead. I'm kind of like a magnet attracting people that are interested in what I, what I have to say. So that, those are people I want to have conversations with versus just someone, some random rich guy who's kind of cold off the street. Well, isn't that so cool too, with the podcast, like you say, because people call you, you have no idea who they are and they feel like they know you because they've listened to you for hours right. and hours and hours. It's a really good, it's a really good tool. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. And like, like you said, they, they have a relationship with me, even though I never met them. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing, especially doing enough. I remember I went to dinner with my wife and her family and then we're just sitting at a table and someone comes over and says, oh, are you Michael Becker? And it's going to sound like a little meat. <laughs> celebrity and my wife is all embarrassed and in front of her parents so it's kind of kind of interesting but it's it's cool when when it, when it works you know no so we always ask one question to end and then um we'll ask you how people can find you so what's your yeah. definition of generational wealth oh i don't that's a good question um you know i mean i think we're, we're probably pretty close to that in, in in my life i mean my my, my mother was a school secretary my father was uh fixed appliances for a living. So, you know, certainly we weren't poor, but we didn't, you know, didn't come from, you know, a silver spoon or anything in my mouth and to accomplish what we've been able to accomplish in a relatively short period of time. It's been pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, from the time I bought my first little rent house to, to today, I'm, I don't even know how many multiples my net worth is from that moment in time. And so now, you know, I got, I got two kids, I got a nine and 11 year old. So I'm trying to make sure one, we don't screw them up too bad. And they're, <laughs> you know, productive members of society. And then maybe one of the two of them want to get into the business and kind of take it over and, and, and grow it from there. So I think that would be, to me, that'd be personally uh, satisfying if one of them would, would want to be in the business. I don't know if that's going to be the case or not the case. And, uh, you know, certainly if I didn't know, know ever deals the rest of my life, the, you know, the, what we own could just regenerate. And that's really cool about the asset class I've chosen that is, you know, a residual perpetual thing that keeps going up in value and the, the cash flow it spits off if done well, will continue to, to grow in, in, in size every, every month and it's recurring and uh, regenerates over and over and over again. So I think that is, uh, you know, certainly, I don't know if that answers your question. Or no, not, that's, that would that's be something that, you know, these are really durable uh, perpetual assets if, if done right in the markets and you gotta, you gotta pay attention because, you know, if, if you if you thought that in 1960 and you're in Detroit and then half the population moved out, it might be <laughs> yeah. not quite as good. Yeah. So maybe you need to pay attention to maybe move out of Detroit and come to Dallas in the 1960s and then you'd have been doing just fine or Los Angeles or whatever. And um, but yeah, I think it's uh, it's a great business and whether you're active or you're passive or 
whatever, I, I would at least encourage you to at least get some level of allocation into the space. So I think the, the demographic wins and the governmental, uh, the government wants to encourage affordable housing. Demographics are in our favor, population growth. As long as you're in a market that's got in-migration and jobs in-migration, you got a lot of wins at your back. So I think you can have on a risk-adjusted basis some pretty healthy uh, returns. And the tax advantages are much better than almost, uh, almost any other investment out there. Yeah. What's the best way for uh, people to learn more about you or find you? Yeah, I'll give uh, two resources, really. So uh, I think the thing I'm most excited about is the new show. It's called the Multifamily Investing Show with Michael Becker. So you can find that on. So video show is uh, in a studio, pretty highly produced. Uh, so we're getting some pretty top-level guests, I, I feel, in. So you can find that on YouTube. It's probably the best way. Or it's on iTunes or Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Where, wherever you probably hear my voice, you, you can just type, uh, type the show in or URL is www.multifamilyinvestingshow.com or the company I run is uh, SPI Advisory. So our website's www.spiadvisory.com. There, there's a contact us form, you fill it out and always have to sit on information about what we do. Awesome, appreciate the time, love the show. Um, lots of great information and hopefully one day we can do this again. Yeah, nice, awesome. nice to see you guys, thanks so much. Okay, yeah. thank you. Bye. Okay, bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.